Well, today um, we are taking a break. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been there for the last several weeks. Uh, this sermon series we've been doing through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and uh, it's been an incredible thing. We're taking a little hiatus today. We'll be jumping back in there next week um, because we're entering into a season we do every year uh, around membership renewal, church membership. And so if you're a member with us, if you've been around Frontline and you've kind of committed and anchored your life into our church, you know this is coming around. We want membership to mean something. So in case you're not a member or you're kind of new to us, this is what we mean by all of that. We want membership to mean something here, not just a class you attend, not just a, a signature you give to us, uh, or not just some sort of um, weird club join up. That It actually means something. It's us locking our arms together, committing to be disciples together, um, growing together in mission and growing together in obedience, and also um, having a relationship with one another and with the pastors of this church so that we can care for one another. So membership renewal is something we do uh, once a year around this time in the summer, uh, and it's a way for members of our church to consider their commitment to the church or if God's moving them in a different direction. And it also allows the pastors of the church to engage with the members uh, on a personal level in case any needs are arising uh, in your life uh, for us to have those meaningful relationships and meaningful touch points uh, throughout the year. So um, today, we do this every year around this time, we have a sermon that just reminds us of what we're doing and why we're doing it around church membership. So this is the riveting moment every year on the church calendar where we preach on church membership. Yes. And you're like, man, of all days to come to church, I was like, I'm just saving it for June 2nd. Because around that time, every year, they slip in it, you know. So, yeah, church membership today. Well, I know that's not like the topic that every one of you were like, you know, had a hankering for today. But let me tell you why I'm excited about it. And not just because of pastor speak and not just because I'm trying to tell you this is really going to be exciting when it's not. I actually think it is exciting because it has everything to do with what you care about most. Let me tell you first what I'm not doing today, what this is not today. This is not a timeshare pitch, right? This is not like I'm going to... Uh, take 30 minutes of your time and give you some golf clubs on the back end of this, right? There's no golf clubs on the porch steps. There's no couples massage after this. Like this is, right, this is not a timeshare pitch. It's also not a way where I'm going to tell you how our church is a more desirable place to be than other churches in our city, right? I have no desire um, to spend my life in sort of some weird Christian competition, right, or like church competition, and why I'm going to tell you that you should be here and not the church down the road. Uh, there are lots of amazing churches in our city. We hope to be one of them, and by God's grace, we want to honor Jesus, right? But my idea is not to show you why you should be here instead of another place that maybe has smoke during the music time, or lasers, or like why our kids' ministry is awesome, even though it's not six flags over Jesus, right? Like, like this is not about that. Like, there's this weird thing in Oklahoma Bible Belt culture where it's like about transferal growth, you know, where you're at one place long enough until you feel like your preferences aren't met, and then you just hop to the next place that seems to meet your preferences. Listen, I'm just trying to unfold the church today, right? This is not about a pitch of desirable places. And this lastly is not about money. So like I don't even own a pair of cufflinks in case you're wondering, uh, you weren't, but let me just go just lay that out there. I don't have a jet or any backdoor plan to get one. 
I don't even have a TV show, and you wouldn't watch it if I did, right? This is not about sowing a seed. This is not about money. This is not. This is about the purposes of God's Son in the church, right? So at the end of the day, church membership isn't about any of those things. Membership isn't about perks. It's not about discounts. You get pastoral counseling at a discount rate, right? No, like it's not about perks, it's not about discounts, and it's not about reward points. It's not about reward points. I know some of you are thinking, okay, you give me this little introduction, this has nothing to do with my situation right now. Maybe you're coming and you're thinking, I got issues in my life and this is the last thing I need to hear from the church. I was hoping to hear something else from the church today that addresses my issues. If that's you, I've been praying for you all week. I actually think that Jesus intends to meet every single one of us. And I believe this has everything to do with every one of us in the room, no matter where you are. And let me show you why. Because church membership, what it is, is primarily about Jesus. Now, that seems like, oh, shocker, spoiler alert of the day, right? Church membership is primarily about Jesus. And here's why that's good news for every one of us. Jesus is primarily about helping sinners, right? That's all of us. That's every single one of us. And his purposes are never to drag you along for 30 minutes to endure something and to get something else better on the back end. He intends to meet us in this moment. So today when we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, the passage that was read just a moment ago, Colossians chapter 1 is all about the supremacy of Jesus. It's entirely 100%, literally the last line of the text we read is, so that in all things he might be preeminent, that he might be supreme. And so from our text today, there's four questions that that are going to get answered for us, and I'll sort of give them in case you want a map for our time together. The first question is, how can we be sure what God is like? It's the first question this text is going to answer. There's a character that you and I are depending on God to have. How can we be sure of it? That's the first one. The second one is, what's the extent of his control? Like, what's the extent of God's power and control? How far does it go? And then the third question is, so then can you show me proof of his conquest? Can you show me a tangible proof of of just how much God has power down here? And then the last question we'll land with is, so why does this matter for us, right? So, So that's sort of our map today. And let's jump in with the first question. How can we be sure of what God is like? Look back at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I love this verse. Like if you're a person who marks in your Bible or, or anything like that, this ought to be underlined, starred, put hearts around it, uh, underline it, whatever you do, put it in a certain highlighter color. This ought to to be a verse you acknowledge, right? Why? Because this is a massive claim this text is making. This is a massive claim. This text lays waste to any claim of universalism. The idea that there's one God and many paths to him, just choose your own religious adventure. This lays waste to that. It also lays waste to the notion that we could come to God with this sort of popular statement of, you know, when I think of God, I like to think of God as... And then we all kind of give our philosophical answer around the divine, right? It lays waste to that. Why? Because the arrival of Jesus is God's megaphone to humanity shouting to us, 
you don't have to wonder what I'm like anymore. You don't have to philosophize about me. You don't have to hypothesize about me. You don't have to do any of those things in the guessing game. I'm coming to you in living color so that you can sit next to me, so that you could listen to me. God has a voice in the Galilean named Jesus so that you could watch me, so that you could eat a meal with me, so that you could interrogate me, so that you could betray me, so that you could even crucify me, so that you could witness me keeping all my promises through an empty tomb, and so then you could be forgiven by me and have me wash away all your shame. There is literally so much to say around this one verse. Theologians have written volumes on it, but the bottom line is, if you want to know what God is like, look no farther than Jesus of Nazareth. If you want to know what God is like, look no farther than him. Now, I know that for some of you, maybe you're skeptical, which I'm totally friends with, and you're thinking to yourself, that seems like it limits God. Like to say that, All of God is captured in Jesus. That seems like a limitation on him. Surely there's more to him than that. That seems overly reductionistic. That seems maybe even be a contradiction of terms, some of you would say, because I'm not sure that Jesus ever called himself God. That seems like something his followers did after he was dead and gone, and they just took it an extra mile. Maybe those are some of your rejections. Maybe they're not. Let's just play like they are for a second. So maybe those were limitations on God. Well, Colossians 1, the chapter we're in, if you skip down to verse 19, look at what it says. For in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. There is nothing lacking about God present in Jesus. Everything it means to be God. God the Father is present in God the Son, is present in God the Holy Spirit. It's the mystery of the complex triune God, three but one, God the Son is fully God, right? Well, it seems like you're oversimplifying the fact that God is captured in Jesus, like there's more to God than that. Well, but in John 14, 6, Jesus tells us, for I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus himself says, yeah, actually the only way you're coming to the Father is through me. Maybe the third question, right? Like, well, did Jesus ever actually claim to be God? Is that not something we're doing on his behalf? Well, John 14, verse 9 will be on the screens. It says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Striking statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus seemed to have made the claim himself. So Jesus is the fullest revelation of God to us, and he completely blows up our categories. He completely blows up our categories. So anytime you and I have a statement like, or we hear someone make a statement like, when I like to think of God, I think of him as, we end up settling for something less than who God is. Let me explain that for you. So Jesus is way more ferocious than any of us would imagine him to be. Like who could have prepared for a God who would come to us, walk into a religious institution, and then start flipping over tables? 
Like, that's not politically correct, Jesus. You can't just do that. But he did. <laughs> like, no one would have prepared for that. No one could have predicted that. No one would have, like, you know, that's, this is what's going to happen. God's going to show up and blow the place up. But that's what happened. He's also way more direct than any of us would want him to be at times. Consider the story of the woman at the well. She's this promiscuous woman who's had five husbands, and the one she's with isn't her, current, isn't her husband. And Jesus shows up, and the first sermon he preaches to her is a sermon on sexual purity. And all of us would have been like, that's a bad ministry strategy, Jesus. <laughs> like, you're going to go with the most offensive thing in her life first. Wow, I hope you know what you're doing, right? And the story goes on to say, she actually hears it, interacts with it, goes back to her neighborhood saying, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done, and she's rejoicing. Turns out it was a good strategy because he uses his knowledge, the fullness of God, not to shame her, but to heal her. Not to reject her, but to actually invite her, right? He's way more direct. He's also not predictable or tame. Who would have foreseen the king of the world coming through the poor home of a carpenter in the hick town of Nazareth? Like nobody. In fact, scriptures say it was common knowledge in that day, does anything even good come from Nazareth, right? And not only that, his disciples couldn't come around to understand why his death would be a good thing, why it would end in victory and not defeat for them that sounded ridiculous. He's not predictable, he's not tame, he's risky, he's wild, but he's in control and that's what we love about him. That's what we love about him. For all the talk in our culture of Jesus being inclusive and loving, right? Like the Swedish pageant Jesus who's super groomed and dainty, just handing out love to everyone. <laughs> He's actually way more loving than our wildest imagination, right? So think about Peter, who denied him three times the night of his arrest. The darkest night in the life of Jesus and his best friend rejects him. I don't even know him. You would imagine the first words Jesus would have for him when they meet again would be words of contempt and judgment. But the first words Jesus has for him are, hey, Peter, let's eat breakfast. <laughs> That's way more loving than the crazy versions of him that we come up with in our brains. Way more loving. What kind of God is this? Jesus blows our categories. He's not predictable. He's not tame. He's not soft. He is confusing. He is complex, yet he's also simple and clear. He's uncomfortably honest, even when it stings, and he's not apologetic. He's compelling, and we're left wanting more. One more. He's wonderful and powerful. He makes our cold hearts melt. He makes our anxious hearts calm, and he tells us who we are because we're all in identity crisis. This is Jesus. And there's still way more that I could say about him. There's still so much more that I could say about him. But we would have never crafted a God like this in a million lifetimes. Every version of God that we like to hypothesize about is less than this. He is the image of the invisible God. He's way more than our own fashions could ever make for ourselves. So now this leads to the second question. Okay, so if he's that great, 
if Jesus is that great, what's the extent of his power? Like how far does his control go? Maybe if you're a Roy D. Mercer fan from back in the day, this is essentially the question, how big a boy are you, Jesus? Right? No Roy D. Mercer fans? Okay, I'm alone. Well, check it out. Spotify will help. Um, I'm actually shaming myself when I say that. Um, Notice the language of verse 15. How far does his control go? It says he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. This is language of rank and inheritance. This is the way in his culture you would have known who was getting the family inheritance. It always belonged to the firstborn son. So the bottom line of this, firstborn of all creation, means all creation belongs to Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God and everything belongs to him. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created. All things. Interesting thing here about the Greek and the original language. All things means all things. Butterflies, fire ants, giraffes, streams, oceans, mountains, clouds, the expanse. All things were created by him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, there is nothing in all of creation that doesn't have the fingerprints of Jesus. There is no institution, there's no power, there's no influence that can sabotage his rule. How far does his power go? This is literally an an exhaustible list. There's nothing that can sabotage his rule. It even goes so far, I love the passage, it says, even there's no rulers or authorities that weren't created by him. This is a reference to even the demonic. Later in Colossians chapter 2, it talks about how he He dethrones, he disarms the rulers and authorities, talking about the satanic accusations over sinners. So it's talking about even darkness. Listen, the only reason darkness has its place is because Jesus has allowed it to, yet because of his unilateral rule, his like uninterrupted rule, even darkness is on a leash. It seems like in our world sometimes darkness is unhinged and evil is happening all around us and inside of us, yet Jesus is telling us it's on a leash. Okay, so you go, that, that opens up a can, right? Because there's some evil things in our world. Like, what about abortion, rape, all kinds of injustices, innocent killings, school shootings, The list could go on of evil, right? I I can't tell you why the evil things that we see happening around us at times happen. I, I can't answer all of those things, but here's what I do know. That if in spite of those things, or in light of those things rather, if you and I were to go, I can't believe in God as a good God because evil exists. Well, if you dismiss God then all you're left with is yourself. It's not a brighter alternative. It's not a brighter alternative. And what this verse is telling us is even in the midst of darkness and evil, there is no asterisk over the rule of Jesus. There is no asterisk. So there's coming a day when every single darkness will be laid to waste. And there's coming a day when every injustice 
will be dealt with and turned to right. Like that's the good news of having God at the center in the face of evil, is that it will not win and it will not get the last word. And he, even though right now it feels like is letting people off, it will be proven that no one will get away with it. You will either suffer judgment on your own head or you will trust the son of God who suffered judgment on his head, right? And so in our popular day, it's present to think about, oh, there's like this dualistic struggle between good and evil. Who's gonna win, right? It's like our favorite comic book movies. Like who's gonna win, I don't know. And we think that's what's happening in the universe. That's not what's happening. Jesus is ruling and it's not even a fair fight. Like it's not even a fair fight. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. One of my favorite quotes from a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. There's not a square inch of our whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. So how can we be sure of what God is like? You look at Jesus. Well, how far does his power go? He goes as far as you can imagine and farther still, right? Thirdly, okay, so show me proof of that. Show me proof of, proof of his conquest, right? Because it feels like, at least this is how I felt this week is studying, it feels like to this point, if we just stop there, that I'm telling you about some imaginary mascot out there that's awesome. His name is Jesus, but we've never seen anything of him, right? So can you show me some proof? Can you like show me some empirical data of his conquest? Let's finish the passage in verse 18. It says, he is head of the body, the church. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay. So this is like to the point of the sermon, just to like let you in on what's happening up here, that I've been holding all my preacher angst in that I'm about to unleash, right? This just had me going all week. So this is the linchpin of everything we believe. Easter is not, or the resurrection rather, is not just an Easter thing. Sometimes we think it's like, oh, Easter Sunday, pull out the pastels, get on your nice clothes, front line gets a job and looks professional, right? No, Easter and resurrection is an everyday thing that orders the everyday stuff of our life. Let me say it this way. If the bones of Jesus are still in the Middle East somewhere, then none of this matters. Like we are the most idiotic people in our city right now. You are having a colossal waste of time right now. If the bones of Jesus are still in the Middle East somewhere, this is literally ridiculous. He's just like anybody else who's ever died who hasn't been able to do anything for you. But if they're not, like we confess they're not, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. 
He's the firstborn from the dead. So in the same way that he's the firstborn of all creation, so that all creation is his inheritance, he's also the firstborn from the dead. Everlasting life is his inheritance. He holds the keys over death itself. Resurrection belongs to him as proof that nothing can defeat him. Last night, as I was finishing up what's going on here, there's a passage that my mind ran to in Ephesians 1 that actually says the exact same thing we're looking at in Colossians 1, just from a different passage. So this is the theme of the New Testament. Look at it. Ephesians 1:19 on the screen. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So did you see it? Both of these passages are driving to the same thing. What does Jesus do as the sign and the proof that he's the resurrected ruler of all things? He sets himself up as head of the church. You remember um, those old marketing things that Disney World used to do with have these cameos of athletes after they won like a championship or something? And they would like, you know, like in the middle of all the confetti falling and like the sweat and whatever, they would go to the football player like, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? And they were like, I'm going to Disney World. And they were paid like 100 bucks on the spot or probably more than that to do that. Right? Like it was like, this is the sign of my conquest. I'm the king of the world. I'm going to Disney World, you know. And we all feel like losers at home. Like, oh, I better go to Disney World too. I'm going to go in debt, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> you laugh because it's true, right? But it's like the sign of conquest. What are you going to do? Something awesome. This is the parallel of that for Jesus. You've just been resurrected from the dead. Blood was not pumping through your veins. Your eyelids were scabbed over because of a horrific crucifixion from Rome. You are a corpse, and yet your veins started pumping blood again. Your heart starts coming alive again. Your eyes start blinking again. Your healing hands start moving again. What are you going to do? I'm going to set myself up as head of the church. I'm going to set myself up as head of the church. None of this exists without Jesus. The church is the sign that Jesus is who he says he is. This is the sign. Can you give me visible proof of his conquest? We're here. 2,000 years of confessing disciples gathering every Sunday because you can't deny it's not true. Eyes wide open, not numbskulled, narrow-minded humans. Eyes wide open, full of insight and intellect, making informed decisions about what's true in the world, confessing disciples, Jesus is Lord. We're not in a vacuum somewhere. This started, this thing started with a carpenter from Nazareth telling some guys who were uneducated fishermen and tax collectors, and then later 
a serial ex-murderer in the Middle East of the kingdom of God and then rose from the dead. And those guys told some other guys who told some other people who told some other people who told some other people who took over the Roman Empire such that Constantine was like, well, I guess I got to go for it. Who then took over Europe who then made its way across the pond, who then told some other people, who told some other people, who told your grandmother, who told you, who then told me, who now we sit here doing this. This is the church. Can you give me proof of his conquest? Well, we're singing songs about it. We're eyes wide open about it. You and me are people who have resisted this reign of Jesus whom we have never seen, but yet we believe as much as we possibly could. You and I are people who have no business confessing resurrection life as our own, considering our own compromised histories. And yet this confession of resurrection life is ours because the living and active word of a resurrected king chased you down and wouldn't let go. Wouldn't let go. The announcement of Jesus as head of the church is a declaration of all-out war against Satan, sin, and death. Every week that we gather and we sing our battle hymns, every week that we gather and we confess our failures and yet receive his assurance, every week that we gather and we order ourselves again under his holy word, is a sign to the demonic powers and to sin and to death. Your time is short and you're on a leash. You're on a leash. And so even though we gather on a Sunday like this, I'm all busted by sin. I'm grappling with shame. We grapple with unbelief. We grapple with anxiety we grapple with addictions. We're busted, right? But resurrection life is ours. But I'm a wreck. But resurrection life is mine. But I'm addicted. But resurrection life is mine. But I got shame all over the place and I can't see straight. But resurrection life is mine. Our king is proof that it won't always be this way. We grapple for a while. We believe in the midst of conflict for a while. We do this for a while. If you're grappling and you're struggling and you can't seem to find a breath of air in your faith, that's normal Christianity in case you're wondering. We all feel like we're the freak in the room. That's normal. His resurrection ensures our resurrection. His inheritance as the firstborn from the dead proves there's gonna be more resurrection from the dead. He's just the first. His inheritance is our inheritance. That's the beauty of the gospel. Everything that belongs to Jesus for all who name him now belong to you. There's coming a day when a trumpet's gonna blow and an eastern sky is gonna part and all who have died in faith, including you and I, if we die before that moment happens, our graves will be emptied. We will be caught up with him and seen with him as the one who fought our battles. Where does that happen? The church. The church. 
And so why does this matter for you and me? Here's our last question in the landing. Why does this matter? It means that Jesus has formally identified with you. He resurrects from the dead and he says, who do you wanna be associated with? Dirty sinners. And I wanna call them the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. I wanna associate with you. Do you hear? Jesus has formally identified with you and me. My favorite verse in scripture, Hebrews 2, verse 10. He's not ashamed to call you brother, sister. The church has never been a decision of convenience. Purchasing the church required crucifixion that was never convenient or easy. The church has always been about a conviction and a resolve and it oriented the whole life of Jesus. And if that's true for him, how much more so for us? The church is not about convenience. I get it. Sunday morning isn't always convenient. The church is not occasional. Jesus didn't occasionally live his life for the church who would believe on him. He pushed his chips to the center of the table for you and for me. So, so what do you do when a warrior king does that for you? You kind of go, I'll push my chips to the center of the table too. And I want to formally identify myself with the thing that you say you're the head of, the church. The church. Church membership is locking arms. I'm calling myself out. I'm formally doing this. I'm raising my hand. I'm going to lock my arms with other believers in a local community where we're going to grow together as disciples and learn to live on mission with Jesus. The beautiful thing about the church is that the kingdom of Jesus doesn't know retreat. The kingdom of Jesus doesn't know hold the line. When you're resurrected from the dead, you only move forward. You only move forward. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just wanna say, I'm really glad that you're here. And you're like, man, these Christians are super weird, you know? We are. But here's what I wanna say, if you're not a Christian, Kick the tires around this place as long as you want. Ask as many questions as you want. Like it's our joy to have you here. But if you are a Christian, if you confess the name of Jesus, remaining in a space of indifference about your connection and commitment to a local church is not an option. Like it's not an option. The Bible does not understand a Christian detached from the body of Christ in a formal way doesn't understand it. Whatever that is, it's not Christianity, right? And so if you are a Christian, let me say it this way. If you've been here at Frontline for a while, like if you've been attending this church for years and you're like, that's my home church, but you're not a member, hey, move in. Move in. Like, we're glad you're here. Nothing's going to change. Just like jump in with us. Like root yourself down, limit your options, commit to something and watch Jesus be faithful. If, um, if you're here and you are a member, my question would be, are you connected to a community group? Are you serving? Are you giving? So I ask that because here's why I say that. If three, like, certainly we have like 1,300 people that worship with us on a given Sunday. We have a bunch of members, but not all of our members are like fully living out membership. So like, what if, three-fourths of our members, like, I'm going to jump in. 
Jesus resurrected from the dead, called himself the head. I'm going to connect and root down. I'm going to start going to community group. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to give, and I'm going to serve. There is untold damage on this city for the name of Jesus that we could accomplish if that were to happen. If just three-fourths, not even 100%. Like untold damage on this city for the name of Jesus. There are ministries that would exist that I can't even imagine right now because that's not, I don't have the resources. I don't have the resources. So what I'm telling you is I want leadership problems. <laughs> like if we all threw in, it would create massive problems for me and the rest of the elders. We want problems. Make our jobs hard. Make them that way. I'm 35 years old. It makes me kind of a young pastor. But here's what I know. I don't want to check out at 65 or whatever age I check out at from the pulpit and like just know that I like kept this thing afloat and maintained status quo. I don't want to do that. You don't either. You don't want to check out and go, you know what? I just kind of made it. Raise the bar. Like there is stuff that Jesus wants to do in our city that we don't see happening because we're sitting on our thumbs. The church, raised from the dead, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna be the head of the church. I don't want status quo. Status quo is boring. And when you're bored with Jesus, he's not the problem. We're the boring ones.